Every interaction we have represents our king of whom we serve. Uh, every interaction we have, whether it's with a friend, with a neighbor, with a coworker, is a representation of what we believe about God. Uh, whether that is a conflict that we enter into, or whether that's going out with friends to enjoy the city that we live in, every single moment, every interaction, every conversation, every business deal, every trip to the dentist, everything we do in our life is a reflection at all times of who we believe we are. Now today we're going to be dealing with conflict. We're going to be dealing with conflict. Specifically, the text, as you heard it, just read to you, has to do with lawsuits. And, and we have a very important place we're going to talk about lawsuits as followers of Christ, and we'll get there. But also I think we can broaden this conversation to also discuss conflict in general and how we deal with conflict with one another as followers of Christ. Every conflict you enter into displays what you believe about your king. Recently, I was uh, watching a conflict work its way out online. I was following two men that I respect gratefully, two very different men being used by God in very different ways. One of them much more kind of like an attack dog, and the other one much more like a St. Bernard, okay? (laughs) That's the two personalities of these men. And interestingly, the St. Bernard kind of had this what I felt was an inappropriate comment towards the attack dog. He, uh, he called him out publicly. He said, how dare you do what you're doing? And this little back and forth got going between them. And the attack dog guy said to the St. Bernard guy, he said, what are you talking about? They got in this argument. All of a sudden, a number of unbelievers were joining into the threads saying, look at these Christians arguing with each other. It, it was going for about a day or so. And then, <clears throat> and then one of them had a post. He said, I'm calling you in the morning. Let's talk about this on the phone. The next thing I know, the next day, both of them have this sweet post. They say, we spoke on the phone. We worked through our differences. We're both sorry for how we handled this publicly. Jesus is king. Now, there's something in there, in that interaction, that that I think is right at the heart of this passage. We oftentimes, as followers of Christ, forget that our first reaction is not always the right reaction to take when we have controversy with one another, and that there's a whole lot of other people looking in on the disagreements we have with each other in this life. So before we go any further, I want to get you to think personally for just a moment. What disagreements are you in right now? If you're a human, you've probably got a couple of them. That's everybody, I think. (laughs) Family? Is it with... Mothers and fathers? Is it maybe with coworkers? Is it with people in the church, in this community? Conflict rises up in all different levels and all different degrees. And conflict can be something kind of passing where it's not that big a deal. But then also, if you let conflict bubble, at times, we've seen this, I've seen this in my own life, it can bubble up in the church where when it bubbles up in a Christian community and you don't deal with it, you don't know how to deal with it, it can, it can get to a, a splitting point where entire communities can be split apart because we didn't know how to deal with it. My question to you is you think about the people that you have conflict with in your life. Do you know how to deal with that conflict in a biblical way? Particularly if it's other followers of Christ, people claiming to follow Jesus, do you know how to step into that conflict in a way that reflects the king that you say you serve? If you recall from our sermon series, we're going verse by verse through 1 Corinthians, and we've gotten into this section that's a very practical section in 1 Corinthians. He is dealing with very specific issues that this Corinthian church in the first century was dealing with. Last week, we dealt with sexual immorality in the church. 
And actually, for the next two weeks, we're going to deal with sexual immorality again. Then we're going to deal with marriage and, and conflict that was happening in marriage and how to handle those conflicts in marriage. But today, he, he steps back from that kind of section of issues, and he looks at something else that's going on in the church, and that's lawsuits among believers. One believer suing another believer. Conflict breaking out in the church. And one of the big themes, one of the major threads we've been trying to draw out from this entire book is this, this idea of counterformation. Now, if you've been in our small groups, you've heard this theme come up over and over again. What we mean by counterformation is this. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, God does a, a brand new work in you. It's not just taking who you were and kind of modifying you to get a better version of you. The scriptures say that you die to your old self, an entire new man or new woman is born. It's called being born again. And what that means is that every, everything you thought you knew about how you handled life, how you handled conflict, how you handled work, how you handled marriage, all of that gets put away when you trust in Jesus Christ. And God begins something new in you. But the idea of counterformation is that sometimes, often what happens in our life, is that we're still behaving according to our old habits and old practices. We're dragging our old life, the fleshly life, into this new life with us. And really what we're doing is we're dragging the world's ideas into the church with us. And counterformation is this idea of, of ripping out the world's ideas and saying it doesn't, it doesn't matter how many you know, bedazzles they put on that idea. It's not going to work. We got to rip it out and we got to get to what does the Bible say. We're, we're, we're forming a, a counterculture according to the way of Jesus Christ. And it's difficult. It doesn't, it doesn't come without effort and energy. It doesn't, come up, it doesn't come without study, without asking the Holy Spirit to form something new in you. Today, we're going to be looking at how that works in terms of conflict. Verse 1, let's begin this way. I, I want to first talk about the context. We, we really have to understand what was happening in Corinth before we get any further. So verse 1 says this, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare, this is very big language, you can circle that if you have your notebooks with you, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 1, does he dare go to the law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Paul is, is appalled that the, the followers of Christ within this church would dare take a lawsuit among themselves and go into a public trial run by secular courts to deal with their lawsuit. Now, the language is really extreme. When he says, how, does he dare, this is Paul's way of, of elevating this nearly to the, uh, you know, to, to the highest degree of his opinion. This is him putting a stamp down and saying, how dare you? What a, what a ridiculous thought that two Christians would get into conflict with each other and you'd sue each other in a public court. But what are, you, what are you thinking? That's what he's saying in that verse. That's the language and what he's getting after here. Now, now what are we talking about what are you not talking about? Later on, he uses this term in, uh, I think it's in verse 3. Do you not know that, that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters, that's the word, matters pertaining to this life? The word that's used there is to talk about civil lawsuits, not criminal lawsuits. There were two different words that he could have used. This section is not talking about criminal lawsuits, where actual crimes are being committed that break actual laws. We, we, can, we can talk about that, and we will, and I'll walk through why that's important here. What this is talking about is minor conflict that could go to court in a civil lawsuit that should be worked out in the context of a local church. Okay, that's the context of what we're dealing with here. Now, we also need to know a little bit about Corinthian courts. Paul, first century, writing to a church in a city, much like Chicago, in Corinth. 
Now, lawsuits in Corinth, there's actually a lot we know about what was happening culturally back then and why Paul would be so disgusted that they would enter into these law, 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 places of law to work this out. First of all, Corinthian courts were essentially public theater. And what I mean by that is that lawsuits and courts were done in a public setting in which, depending on what, how big the case was, depending on how well-known the figures were that were going to the, the case, depending on how kind of disgusting the case was, to be honest with you, they'd get any number of people in the crowd watching. Some reports were up to a 400 or 1,000 people gathered in a public square to watch these two people duke it out in a public fashion, okay? And so courts became a bit of a spectacle. It became a theater to show off. In fact, oftentimes, people would, would sue one another for that specific reason because it was an opportunity to have a crowd gather around you and to see what you were made of and to prove your case against another person's case. Going to lawsuit, in, in, taking people to, in, into a lawsuit ended up serving a very particular motivation in a lot of people's hearts in that day. It, it wasn't always just justice that was the motivation to take a person to law. Oftentimes, the motivation was being the center of attention. That's one of the reasons that Paul could be upset about this. Because of that, Corinthian courts were also a place to gain prestige. Those who wanted to be the front and center of attention, those who wanted to make a name for themselves, those who wanted to do something that would draw attraction and then use that to gain you know, self-aggrandizement, you know, could just take someone to court. Get a big crowd around you, yell and scream as you're walking down this courts, make a big scene. All of a sudden, you've got a thousand people who know your name at least. If you weren't known, you are now. So it was a way of gaining prestige. You get a couple wins in a row in 1 Corinthians, in, in, in the Corinthian culture. You get a couple lawsuits in a row. You, you begin to actually be a man of power, a man of authority in the community. Not only that, but the Corinthian courts were highly unjust. They were known for their injustice. It was known that if you took someone to court, basically the person who won is the one who had the deeper pocketbooks who could bribe the judge the most. Okay? And so, and so because of that, it was also a way to win people in high places to your favor. This was political ideology working its way out. So again, what are the motivations someone might, in, in Corinth... It, when you study the Bible, one of the things you have to do is you have to get to the first culture. You have to understand what was Paul saying, what was he writing to, what was their heart. Then, once you understand their heart in their place, you can draw the principles back to our current context and how it might hit our heart and our minds, okay? So, for them, this was a, a political ideology. I can gain favor and... And, frankly, I can get more money. If I'm wealthy, I can make a bigger bribe. I can end up making more money off of court. It was a way to make quick money off other people. Because you take someone to court, take whatever they have. If you've got more money, you can pay the judge off. Let me, let me read to you a few quotes from the day that tell you about the injustice of the court. Out of Dio Chrysostom, he said the Corinthian courts, lawyers innumerable perverting justice. Cicero said, the courts will never convict any man, however guilty, if only he has money. Petronius, an author of the time, writes into one of his plays, he says, of what avail are laws to be where money rules alone, and the poor suitor can never succeed? So a lawsuit is nothing more than a public auction, and the nightly juror who sits listening to the case approves, with the record of his vote, something bought. 
Courts were a place to buy your power. That's what it was. Now, in light of all this, consider with fresh eyes the passage we just read. Okay? Now, we think our court system, and there may be some overlap of what we just said to our court system, and some things that do not overlap with our court system. It's not a one-to-one here. But let's get to the motivations. Why would Paul be so appalled, use the highest language to say, how dare you, Christian church, walk into the public place and sue one another? You think they're going to solve your problems for you? What are you motivated by? Are you trying to make a spectacle of yourself? Are you trying to get known in this city? Are you trying to make quick money off the poor? Do you actually think that because you have some money, we've already dealt with some of these issues in 1 Corinthians, because you have some money that you can buy your place in society? What ethic are you living off of? That's what he's saying. All of that in verse 1. Because we're beginning to understand. You've got you to know what is the context. What's the culture? What's going on here? Now, into that context, into that culture, Paul is going to use the rest of the passage to lay out three reasons why one believer should never take another believer to court in a minor issue, in a civil issue. Reason number one, the wisdom to settle the, wisdom to settle the matter ought to be within the church already. Whatever the issue is, the wisdom needed to settle the issue ought to be within the church, the local church, that's the people gathered in this room already. Let me just say this before we get going. This is fascinating. We are going to get this sermon has been good for my heart preparing this. All of the three points are connected to one another and they build off one another. The first one's very important. The wisdom needed to solve any issue that you're going to get into, whether it's a fender bender or whether it's something a little bit more important that maybe you're really thinking about going to court over this thing, it's all here in the room. Verses Verses one to three. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? Paul's first concern, notice, is not about who's going to win. His first concern is not about making sure that justice is upheld. All those things are important. We see that in Scripture. Justice is a very important theme. Our God is a God of justice. Justice and righteousness are the foundation of his throne. Psalm 89, 14. Very important theme. We'll work that through. That's not his lead foot. His lead foot is, don't you know your identity? Have you forgotten who you are, Christian? You're behaving as if you're someone that you're not. You're behaving as if you're someone who Jesus has not given his blood to cover on the cross. You're behaving as if you are not holy, sanctified. Remember remember the first sermon? You are a priesthood. You are holy. You are sanctified in Christ Jesus. But you're behaving like you're not. He says, you're going to judge the angels. Now, it's not our place to read beyond what the scriptures tell us. And when it comes to this particular piece, we don't actually know the exact details of how this will work out. There's quite a lot of speculation. I like to have my ideas. Let me try to bind myself only to what we know from Scripture. It says in this passage, it says, do you not know that we are to judge the angels? Now, people think a lot of different things of this. Does this mean that we are going to judge the fallen angels, what we call demons, okay? 
Jesus will return one day. He'll bring judgment over the whole earth. And we know that there is a judgment coming for angels who have fallen. We get that out of Jude, chapter, or Jude verse 6. It reads this way. The angels who did not stay within their own position, speaking of Noah's day, the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So there's some kind of judgment coming in our future for fallen angels. And it very well could be that we, followers of Jesus Christ, in this room and all around the globe, are going to serve as judges over those angels. This word judge could also mean govern. And so it could be something a little simpler than that. Maybe actually what it means, and this could make a lot of sense to me, think of this, Jesus Christ when he incarnated, did not incarnate himself as an angel. He did not come to that race of creation. He came to the race of humans. He bound himself to human form. Now, in this world, the eon that we're currently in, humans, in a sense, according to Hebrews, are a little bit below the angels, right? There's, there's a separation between us and the access that angels have to the throne room of God, the responsibilities, directness with the relationship with God and how they're sent from God. We're a little below the angels, but in the life to come, it gets flipped. Why? Because Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, did not become an angel. He became a human, and we will reign with him, with all authority, with his authority, for all eternity. Humans play a, a very important role, the, the primary role outside of God over all of his creation. And so it could be that what's going to happen in the eternity is, is that we will govern alongside Jesus over everything he's ever created, seen and unseen. And I suspect that there's a lot of variety of angels that we will marvel at when we get to heaven. And then we will also marvel that God would consider us worthy of judging and ruling over all of his creation. Okay? There's a lot of theology packed into this little verse here. His point is to raise their eyes. So now we know the fact. In some way, we're either going to judge or govern all of the seen and invisible created beings in the world. Now, if that's the case, that's not just me as pastor. That's not just Darren as an elder or not just uh, the Beechams and Stephen Shaw as deacons. That's every follower of Christ. However low you see yourself in the kingdom of God, or however high God raises you to be being used in the kingdom of God, every follower of Christ will one day judge the angels. Oh. Now, what does that mean for how we handle conflict? Paul's saying, raise your eyes. He's saying there's got to be somebody in the room who can handle this conflict among you. You want to sue each other and go to a court, go to a judge? They're not going to judge angels. If you're going to judge angels and God's given you everything you need to do that task, can't you find it in the room to solve the problems you have in your, in your church? Can't you find it in the room to find at least one person? Maybe put it another way. Paul might even go this far, which he will in a minute. Any one of you can solve any problem. Why? Because you're already going to judge the angels. You've already been given the Holy Spirit. You're a new man. You've been given new wisdom. That doesn't mean you don't grow in knowledge and wisdom throughout this Christian life. It doesn't mean you have a long ways to go as you learn the Bible. But the moment you accept Jesus Christ and his blood goes over your life and you're forgiven, you are given the Holy Spirit to lead you in truth and righteousness, and there's not one follower of Christ who cannot handle any problem that we face as a church. You're going to judge the angels. Now, let me answer a handful of questions with this. 
Does this mean, this is very practical, there's attorneys in the room and judges in the room, okay? Does this mean that Christians should not be attorneys? No, absolutely not. You will hear from this pulpit over and over and over again, we need followers of Jesus working their way through to the highest degree of every institution in this country and around the globe. Why? Because we are supposed to be the fragrant aroma of Christ. And where you go, wherever God permits you to go, as high as he will permit you to go, you bring the love of Jesus with you. You bring the Holy Spirit with you. You bring the wisdom of one who is going to judge the angels with you. And you're going to think differently in those spaces. You're going to lead differently. You're going to have an air of mercy and compassion and an understanding of God's law with you wherever you go. And so, Christian, you get into the highest places of society as hard as you can, into every institution. You become school teachers and principals and doctors and physicians, you become in all the places. Why? Because you are the salt of the earth and you will change a nation when you impact the institutions of a nation with Christians being in the the midst of them. So should Christians be attorneys? Yes, of course. Number two, does this mean crimes should not be reported? This passage has been abused terribly in church history and I want to make sure I really work that one out really well. This passage has been used in this way. Something will come up that is embarrassing to a person in leadership in the church. And in order to keep it covered up, the church opens this passage and says, let's get in a closed door room and work this out so no one needs to find out about it. Some of the most atrocious crimes in church history, many of them that have been revealed in the last decade or so, have been done with this passage open. Is that an excuse? Is this passage an excuse for that behavior? Absolutely not. No. Let me say two things to that. First of all, if there is a crime, if there is abuse in any way that is taking place, it needs to be reported and needs to be brought to light immediately. This church has a zero tolerance policy for abuse of any form. We deal with it. We try to be open with it. If anything we see, if anything that's on your heart, we will put care we will, we, will, we will work that through in a way that we believe will be faithful to Scripture. And if it's a crime that's been committed, we go to the courts. I just want you to know, if a crime gets brought forward, we are not just dealing with this in-house. We'll deal with it in-house, and we'll bring the courts into it as well. Okay? And I think this passage in no way, shape, or form rejects that notion. This is talking about minor civil issues, not about crimes. Okay? What this is saying is that when it comes to minor civil lawsuits, everything we need to solve those interpersonal problems is in the church already. Let me just speak to the heart real quick. If, uh, sometimes I feel like I say these things, and, and for some folks, it's a nod of the head, like, good, I'm glad someone's saying that. For other folks, they're sitting there, and they've been abused by the church. And so let me just speak to you for a moment. If you have been abused by the church in the past, by anyone in church leadership, and you have been told to bury it, I want you to hear from me, from your pastor, I am outraged and I want to put the resources around you to expose the person that's done that and to care for you to get full healing, which there is to be had in the name of Jesus Christ. Can you hear that with clarity? I mean business, okay? Now let's get to the heart. How do we deal with conflict? How do we deal with conflict? What were the motivations stirring these people to go to court? It was prestige. It was gaining political power. It was gaining one-upsmanship. It was getting people to look at you. They had all the wrong motivations for going into conflict with one another. And we drag a lot of those same motivations into this with us, don't we? Even if it's not a lawsuit, right? Even if it's just conflict. You're arguing with somebody in the church. 
Why do we argue? And how do we argue? Oftentimes, the way we argue, the way we handle conflict resolution, even after conflict resolution, the way we go back and bring up the resolution, we bring up the old conflict and kind of hold it over the person, what it's revealing is that the motivations were all wrong. And the Word of God gives us a lot to work with here. First of all, we are to be peacemakers, not just peacekeepers. If you're a follower of Christ, you're a peacemaker. Jesus, Matthew chapter 5, verse 9 says this, "'Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God.'" A peacemaker is not just a peacekeeper. Peacekeepers, when there's conflict, they'll bury the conflict. They'll hide it. They'll put it under the rug because what they want is to just keep the peace at all costs. That's not what Christians are to do. When there's an issue that needs to be worked out between a brother and a sister or two brothers or two sisters in Christ, what they do is they go head on to it. Why? Because you're going to judge the angels. And all the wisdom you need to bring peace into that situation has already been granted to you and to your church community. That doesn't mean you just go about just ripping the, you know, the turf up and, and, and opening every can of worms you possibly can. That's not, the, that's not the way to do it. There is a place to look over small things as followers of Christ. But also when there's conflict that can cause harm, you may be a peacemaker. Now, if you're dealing with conflict right now and bitterness is welling up with anybody in this room, that means that your responsibility is to go to them and solve it. Number two, we seek wisdom from Scripture and from godly counsel. If you don't know how to deal with conflict in your life, here's the thing about conflict is it's messy, you think about the, the family members you're in, now you've got the, the, the layer of family mixed in there, right? Layer of all, other friend groups in here. It's very messy. Your community has the wisdom you need to know how to move forward in, building, in, in seeking peace. Don't do it on your own. Lean into your small groups. Lean into the people you love in this church. Lean into your pastors and your deacons. That's what we're all here for. Don't do it on your own. Okay, number one. The wisdom to settle a matter ought to be within the church already. Now, this gets fascinating. Reason number two, public lawsuits among believers shatters our testimony. It shatters our testimony. Verses four to six. So, if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? Now, I'm going to get into a little bit of translation stuff here, and bear with me. Our translations are wonderful. They come from much scholarship, amazing minds. The New Testament was originally written in Greek, okay, in Greek. And we have, we know exactly what the original manuscript said, and we have great translations that are wonderful. But verse 4 is a challenging verse to translate. And there's a few ways to do it, and I don't think our ESV translation, what we're reading here, captures the heart of it very well. In fact, I think it covers over some of the details of what's in that verse. Verse 4 reads this, So, if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? What that makes it sound like that verse is saying is, Paul is saying, look, why do you bring, what he's been saying, why do you bring your cases to non-believers, to a secular court? You don't need to do that. The problem is grammatically, the grammatical structure does not support that rendering of that sentence. There's a different rendering, and it has a whole different meaning. Let me read to you another way to, re to, to render that sentence. It could be read this way. If you have minor cases, those who are disdained in the church, set them on the bench. Let me read to it again. If you have minor cases, those who are disdained in the church... Set them on the bench. Now that's interesting. Grammatically, it makes more sense. And I would say, in context of what he's saying, it makes a whole lot more sense. 
If you have minor cases, those who are disdained in the church, set them on the bench. What does that mean? It means this, that if there's a minor case, here's how you show the world the power of the gospel at work in your church. Take the lowliest person from your entire community. Take the person who no one would say, now there's a person of great wisdom. There's a person who should settle the issues of the world. Take the person that no one would ever guess, they're a judge, and have them settle it. You got a problem? It's an issue that you might go to civil court. Let's show the world around us, church, the amount of wisdom that's sitting in this room by taking the person that no one would ever guess is going to serve as a judge and have them be a judge. What kind of witness would that be to the world? Well, that would be a tremendous witness, wouldn't it? Because what that would say is that we, as a community, truly believe that even the lowliest among us are going, to ju- are going to judge the angels one day, wouldn't it? That would say that we actually believe that the Holy Spirit, when they get a hold of a person, regenerates them and forces something totally new in their heart, that they can and do have the Holy Spirit working in them to solve cases, to solve problems. So you want to be a witness to the world? Take the lowliest among you. Bring your cases once a week, have them serve as a judge, and they give out the judgments of what should do, what should happen. Now, what would the watching world look at them, look in that and say? They'd say, they trust that person to solve their cases? (laughs) What's going on in that place? It seems like they've got everything upside down. And we do, compared to the world's standards. We're totally upside down to the world's standards. We do it completely different. We're, we have a counterformation in this place. The way the world does things and the way Christians does things are completely opposite. The way the Christians do things is we see the wisdom of the world and we say, that doesn't work. It never has. The word of God works. And the word of God says that every follower of Christ, from the moment they put their faith in Jesus, is filled with the Holy Spirit. And they have all the wisdom in the world they need. And so we're going to live by it. Now this makes a lot of you scared, is my guess. Here's why. Because... Now, if that, if that was me, and I'm in a, something where I could have a civil lawsuit and probably get some money back, let's say there was a fender bender or whatever happened, you're leaving church, your cars bump into each other, there's an actual issue, there's money at stake here, do I want the lowliest person in the church, someone who I don't necessarily think has all the wisdom in the world, to oversee that case? Do I want that? Probably not. Why? Because I'd be afraid they'd get it wrong. Point number three, Christians are prepared to suffer wrong for the glory of Christ. Watch this transition, verses seven to eight. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. So why would we not follow through with what Paul is saying here? Well, the fear would be they're going to get it wrong. They wouldn't know all the pieces, and they don't know the amount of wisdom that they should have. But Paul says, why not suffer wrong? If they get it wrong, what's that to you? Now, what's the logic here? Paul's saying, look, every person has an end goal, a telos, an ultimate purpose for their life that they're chasing after. They've got something that is their guiding light, their guiding extreme. Everything in their life is going towards that. And and in the eyes of the world, there's all sorts of teloses that you can have, all sorts of ultimate meaning that you're chasing after. For some folks, they want to succeed. Their their ultimate guiding light is success. 
I want money, I want comfort, I want a big home, I want nice things, right? And so all their decisions in life, how they handle conflict, how they chase after jobs, when they move, when they don't move, how many children they have, when they have children, it's all being decided on this ultimate. I want as much success as I can get. Now, if that's your end game, and you get in conflict with somebody, what we're saying here will never make any sense. Because what do you want? You want to be proven right. You, you want to win. That was the motivations of first century Corinth. Some people, what they want to do, their ultimate meaning is to just keep the peace. That's what I want. I just want to keep the peace. <laughs> I, just, I just want to get by without making people upset. And if that's the ultimate meaning, you'll never do what this says. Why? Because you'll never even want to get to the point where you need a judge. You just bury it. You just bury it, and then one day it explodes. For some people, your ultimate meaning is carnal pleasure. Epicureans. This was Epicurus in the, in, the, in the early Greek philosophy. Pleasure principle. What am I ultimately after? The, the senses. I, I, want, I want the most of my senses to be, to, to be enjoyed. Now, if that's what you want, is, 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 are you going to be able to live this out? No. All of that is what the world is chasing after. But for the Christian, the gospel is ultimately different, isn't it? When God gets a hold of your life, you have an entire new end. You have an entire new purpose. An entire new telos for your life. And what is it? I want Jesus to be king, and I want him to be seen in every area of my life. Now, whatever the cost is that I have to pay for that to be seen, I want him to be seen. Why? Because he got a hold of my life when I was nowhere near him, when I was a, a rebel to who God was, when I was on a one-way path to hell for all eternity. God got a hold of me, and he sent Jesus to pay my sin on the cross, shedding his blood, giving his life that I could have new life. And now my whole life is aimed at one thing. It's aimed at the king of kings. It's aimed at making sure Jesus gets all the glory. Now, if that's your motivation, why not suffer wrong? If suffering a little wrong and losing a little money goes towards showing the world the king that you serve, what could be better? But the fact that something in us rubs the wrong way with that logic shows that we got some, some work to do, right? It shows that the counterformation we're talking about in 1 Corinthians hasn't taken fully place yet because we don't want to suffer wrong. The ultimate aim of the Christian is not just justice. Justice is very important. Justice is very important. And you will hear me teach on the law very clearly. I teach entire classes on how the Christians need to follow the law of God and we need to uphold the law of God and God's got a vision for justice. But Christians go further than justice. We actually have this word called mercy that is one of the defining characteristics of who we are and it's a defining characteristic of who we are because it's what Jesus has done for us. See, you had a great conflict with God. The conflict you had with God was that you had broken his law, not just a minor civil infraction against his law. You broke all of the law. Your punishment was capital punishment. This is, this is the Bible. Your punishment for every sin you ever committed was capital punishment. It was a criminal offense. And as you stand before a holy judge, your verdict would have been guilty. But God shows his love for us and that he sent someone down to pay the penalty for our sins, something he didn't earn. He didn't, he didn't earn the whipping. He didn't earn the thorn of crowns. He didn't earn the nails in his hands. Someone else earned that. But he stepped in and took the payment on our behalf, extending us a mercy that we did not earn, granting us forgiveness where it wasn't ours to have. Justice was that we pay the penalty for our crime. 
Jesus steps in, grants us mercy by taking the cost on himself. And now as followers of Christ, he says, go do the same thing. He says, why not take the cost of a minor infraction on yourself? You want justice? You want that to be the main thing after you've had all justice fully forgiven you? You want that to be the only drum you beat when you go into conflict with each other? Justice. I'm owed this. I'm owed this. I'm owed this. Let's talk about what you were owed. You were owed separation from God because of your sin, but God showed you mercy. Now extend that to everyone you meet. Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone would force you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you. Do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Christians, do we believe that government has the authority and the responsibility to uphold justice? Yes, over and over, Romans chapter 13. On a very personal level, the way we interact with one another, is justice our lead foot according to Jesus? An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth? Jesus says there's something more we're going for. We're looking to turn the other cheek. We're looking to go the extra mile. Who are you in conflict with in your life right now? And maybe, maybe it's something minor. Who, who are you trying to work out how you sort this thing out? How, how you actually get past that wrinkle in your relationship? Have you been driven by the model of a tooth for a tooth and an eye for an eye? My guess is probably. I have. Because you want things set right. The challenge for you today is to step into the place of saying this. I don't need to be right. And I'm not going to hold it against you. Because why? Jesus doesn't hold it against you. I'm never going to bring it up again. I, I release you. I don't, even need, I don't even need you to know that you were wrong. Why? Because Jesus doesn't bring up us, our guilt up with us over and over again. He separated our sins as far as the east or from the west, and he loves us with an unconditional love now. His forgiveness does not need to be renewed over and over again by reminding us of our guilt. No, it was renewed fully on the cross, and now we're fully loved, adopted as children into his family. And so when you handle conflict, you, you now are empowered by Jesus to release others from their debt to you. To release them from, from things they don't even know they owe you. But you're just going to shower mercy on their life. Why? Because Jesus has showered mercy on your life. See, see, if the church gets that, I think we'll start looking a lot like Jesus. I, I think the world looks in on that and, and they see people who have a key to solving conflict that the world does not have. The world does not have mercy. It doesn't understand mercy because it doesn't have the God of mercy. We have mercy. It is the key. That's how we live. That's how we solve conflict. Will you pray with me? Lord, we love you. God, I ask for your grace in this. As I've thought about this this week, I, I just see in myself that um, I have a lot to work on in this. Lord, I pray for your grace in this church. I pray, God, that as we think about conflict in our life, lawsuits in our life, that we would not take this lightly, that we would be those who release others from debts to us, that we would not hold it against them, 
even that we wouldn't harbor bitterness internally, or the next time conflict comes up, that we would keep a score somehow and, and keep a tally and say, well, next time it's, it's our turn to win. God, thank you that you haven't done that for us. You've released us fully from our debt. Lord, we love you. I pray for your wisdom and your strength as we move forward, that we would be a light to the world as we handle our conflict. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.